You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, where has he been? Training. What kind of training? Army training, sir! It's Jeff McLarge-Huge. And don't forget, those who question training only train in asking questions. That, that's, yes. <laughs> What's going on? How are you? Uh, all right. How about you? It's been a uh, good week, I guess. I guess. <laughs> Not bad. I uh, I jumped down a weird rabbit hole after uh, last week's episode. We had discussed, as we like to call her, the Queen of Canada or the, the Princess of Canada, uh, your friend of mine, Celine Dion. Yes. And uh, and I was looking around for the video of of her amazing rendition of "You Shook Me All Night Long," and I stumbled across this one video. I didn't realize it was fake at first. It was Celine Dion performing with Kiss, and they were doing uh, rock and roll all night. And I was looking, I was like, that stage looks a little small for Kiss. And then it was in Australia, and I was like, oh, all right, wait a second, that's not Kiss, that's a Kiss tribute band. And it was actually a Celine Dion impersonator. But the way they set up the video was hilarious, like because the, they like did interviews with her, like and she was talking about how it, how like the show went and how it came about. Yeah, yeah, but it was yeah. all a spoof, though. It was great. It was hilarious. Oh, sounds it. No, I, my rabbit hole is way more boring than that or way less exciting than that. Because Celine Dion is just a, the mecca of excitement. <laughs> Keep in mind, I haven't even described what it is I've been watching. Okay. So, so you tell me whether or not Celine Dion is the epic excitement in the world compared to watching a Scottish guy fix cow's feet. Because that's what I've been watching. Fixing cow's feet? Yeah. Is there a market for refurbished cows for you? Well, that's the thing is, yeah, he comes and he trims them and cleans them up and like addresses like diseases and stuff that they have. I don't know why it's interesting, Bill. It's completely baffling to me. But because of the YouTube algorithm, I watched one video and then it was like, oh, you like cow's feet, huh? Here's four more cow's feet videos, which were all interesting. And then there was like seven more cow's feet videos. And then it was all cow's feet videos. So that's all I can watch now. That's the I, only rabbit hole I have left is cow's feet videos. I, I think it's a good time to delete your cookies. Uh, <laughs> it, may, it may very well be. But no, it's actually kind of interesting and weirdly soothing to watch. Like, I think about, like, what would it be like to have a job where the only stress of the day I had was, is this cow going to sh all over me while I'm trying <laughs> to trim its feet? Because that seems to be the bigger worry that this guy has. Like, he's right there by a cow's ass for eight hours a day trimming feet, and the cows are like, that hurt. <laughs> so no matter what you do, you got to be ready to jaw, jink left or jink right, or it's going to stink for the ride home. So that's my rabbit hole. My cow hole, as it were. I, I think we need to have a discussion off mic one of these days about your your viewing habits on YouTube. <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird, man. I love the way the algorithm just goes like, oh, you like cow feet, huh? There's a, a lot of talk about internet securities and stuff like that. Like, I right. know people that won't... Uh, well, I, I don't want to say her name because she's standing right next to me and I don't want her to freak out. But they won't talk in front of their Alexa. 
dot because oh there she goes now she's listening 450 pounds of cow feet <laughs> but yeah people won't talk in front of her because they think that you know it's recording their conversations and stuff like that it's because it is yeah but even if it is nobody's going to be interested in you you look you're watching cow's feet videos what you know what the best part about the cow's feet video rabbit hole is how many people do you think are putting up videos of them trimming cow's feet uh at least one too many that i can think of well here's the, you wouldn't think there would be more than a couple but there's a bunch <laughs> and they all have like they have like competing camera angles like the freaking camera angles on top gear they all talk to the camera in sort of the same kind of way and they're all begging for you to like like their stories the same sort of way and I, I didn't think there was that big of uh, an audience for people who watch cow feet get trimmed. But apparently... I, I have said this to many a person. Living up here in New England, we're a little spoiled that you really don't understand America until you get past Pennsylvania. Because it, when it opens up out there, it's the, it's just so different. There was a time that, that the only videos that I was that I was able to find in the rabbit hole were a guy who has minks that he uses to go hunt rats. Like, I, How do you find that on the internet? I found it. And what did I watch for two weeks until I ran out of videos? Minks eating rats. Hate to tell you what I look up. You know what I did look up, though, the other day was uh, this week's trivia question. I was thinking about, you know, you know, one of the most boring questions uh, and trivia questions in the world was, Hey, what is the first video that was shown on MTV? You know, everybody knows it's the Buggles and video killed the radio star. Right. But I was wondering, because MTV in the very early days... You know, just they only have like a handful of videos to show. What was the first video that got repeated? What was the first video to be shown twice on MTV? The first video to be shown twice on MTV. Yep. Well, I'm not telling you till later. (laughs) Okay. Well, good. I'm not going to guess till later, so that'll give me some time to think. But what what was I doing on that first day of MTV? All right. But let's get the show started. Um, This is the week beginning. April the 12th, and I I think it's your turn to start. It is indeed. Uh, April 12th, 1976, the book that would become the companion piece to both The Cure and Depeche Mode albums and CDs worldwide (laughs) amongst the uh, teenage hands of readers everywhere. Anne Rice's debut novel, Interview with the Vampire, is published by uh, Knopf. That's the publishing company. And over the course of the next few years... What was the name of the publishing company? Knopf. This, uh, it's pro- probably pronounced Knopf, but it's K-N-O-P-F. Uh, so I, thought, I thought you were swearing at me. Um, anyway, uh, Interview with the Vampire was kind of a quiet seller, but it continued to sell for years and years. And she went on and wrote a sequel called The Vampire Lestat. And after that, The Queen of the Damned. And then Memnock the Devil and like 13 or 14 other books kind of in that series, as well as branching out and doing series on witches and The Mummy and, uh, and all this other stuff. And the books are for, for a period in the 19 late 1980s and early 1990s were incredibly popular with casual readers and and literary readers alike because they're so well written and so interesting. Yeah, I remember that being like a big thing like like a lot of my friends and contemporaries were all reading like the oh have you ever read Interview with a Vampire and I was like uh no, I've, I've, never, I've never been a, a big reader. And when I do read, if I'm going to take time to read a book, I don't like reading fiction. So, but they're like, oh, you're into horror though. It's like, yeah, you don't understand. I have a thing. At least the first two of the three books in what, what was originally called the Vampire Chronicles could be used as a textbook, cl- a classroom textbook on how to world build mm-hmm. in a way that is both effective and economical and memorable. She's able to do that in a way that very, very few other authors have. 
and her attention to like detail and scene setting is really, really, really rich. I think part of the reason is because she wrote under a couple of different names in between 1976 and in 86 or 88 when the second book came out. And she wrote a whole bunch of, well, I don't know what you'd call them today. They weren't hardcore porn books, but they were <laughs> very adult sort of Wakachika ladies literary type porn books under a bunch of different names. And they're all, if you've ever read them, and I, I have, you can sort of spot her phraseology and sentence structure in them. But they're super duper detailed because that's how that kind of writing works. So let me ask you a question real quick. Where do you sure. find the time to read like, you know, 20 cent pulp fiction literary porn novels in between all your cow cleaning foot videos? Well, what's nice about the cow cleaning foot videos is that they're all very short. <laughs> now, there was Interview with the Vampire. What was the second book? The, a Vampire Lestat, which was the history of the vampire that's interviewed in Interview with the Vampire. Okay. How he came to be. Now and, the, and, and then Queen of the Damned. Now they made a movie Queen out of, of the Damned, yeah. they made a movie out of Queen of the Damned, but they never made a movie out of that second one. No, they never did. They sort of incorporated some of the stuff from the second one into the first one, and then made Queen of the Damned, which introduced some other characters and was going to set up for. I think they were going to set up to try and do like Memnock the Devil or cross it over with some of the other stuff that she'd written, but it was what's the best way to describe it? An ill-conceived, poorly written, badly directed, horribly cast movie and then like two days after the movie premiered the star in it got killed in a plane crash so so everything that could possibly go bad with that movie went bad i remember whenever interview with a vampire came out i went to see it in the theater and i made one of the worst predictions of my life i said that little girl's gonna be a star (laughs) well she was for a while yep and then she grew up to be kirsten dunst So I don't know. Some people don't like Kristen Dunst. I, I actually, I, like I actually, she'll always be Mary Jane to me. Babe. Yeah, no, I actually like Kristen Dunst. She actually came through Spooky World one time. She's a lot taller than you think. One of the kind of cool things about the book, the first book, Interview with the Vampire. I mean, it really, really, really worked hard to sort of modernize how a vampire kind of could be in 1976, and that's what makes it so novel. And then in the subsequent books, she goes, she goes back into like standard issues sort of vampire lore to build family around Lestat and, and all this other stuff. So to, she's able to bring people forward and then use that as a hook to sort of b- create this monstrous mythology around them. It was real. It's really, really interesting. If you're interested in like listening to them as an audiobook or, or reading them, they're, they're so much better than the films are and much richer. They also grow, go great with Cure Records and <laughs> Depeche Mode. CDs. Black Manic Panic, yeah. And Clove Cigarettes, yes. All right, let's move on to the next day. Uh, April the 13th, 1844. Uh, Speaking of goth and horror writings, the famous writer Edgar Allan Poe tricks a New York newspaper, The Sun, into publishing a fictional account about a balloon crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, The thing was, yeah, it it was a complete hoax. Um, He he trolled them, as we say these days. He, he did this because um, it was revenge, basically, because the uh, the newspaper, The Sun, they had published a, a story called The Great Moon Hoax in, uh, in 1835, which he thought plagiarized his story called The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hans Fall. Right. Basically, Poe uh, trolled the, the New York Sun uh, daily newspaper for ripping him off. It's, I don't know if that's the first, like, the first documented literary hoax. But it's 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 certainly one of the ones that's the most discussed. If you if you go back and you sort of read up on how people are sort of able to sneak sneak things into the public that are untrue for lols, yeah. as it were. Yeah, I'm not calling um, it a hoax. I'm calling it a troll because he was like getting revenge on them. 
Yes, it is. It is also a hoax because he got paid as if he was a reporter that was reporting on right. it. Which yeah, Poe's an interesting, interesting dude. Aside from from that kind of stuff and being able to use the media at the time to exact revenge on those who have wronged him, or as, as he felt, he also invented the modern detective story. Yes, set the tone for American horror and macabre stories for generations to come. And he was the guy upon whose stories I learned to read from my dad. My introduction to Edgar Allan Poe. Now, I went to Catholic school, and I ended up having the same teacher in both 6th and 8th grade, Mrs. Philippe, Mrs. Susan Philippe. And she was something else. What she was doing teaching at a Catholic school, I don't know. Because she was, like, super dark. She took us to the Salem Witch Museum on a field trip. And I just remember it was around Halloween, obviously. She read uh, The Telltale Heart to us in, I think, 6th grade. It might have been 8th, one of the two. But yeah, I was like, this is one, this is a really cool story. And two, what on earth are you reading this to a bunch of sixth graders, <laughs> crazy woman? Yeah, and that's uh, that's really interesting about Edgar Allan Poe, too, that uh, he wrote basically the first murder mystery story, uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Yeah. And, and it's so funny, it's like the first murder mystery, and, uh, you know, spoiler alert, but the murderer was a gorilla. It's like... <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's like the first yes. murder mystery and the first screw job ending. <laughs> yep. And uh, it definitely uh, it, it, uh, made it hard to be a gorilla from then on because everyone was always suspect. My dad taught me to read on the story, The Cask of Amontillado. So I still remember reading that one as like a four-year-old. Yep. Crazy. All right. So moving on to the next day, 14th. What do you got? Uh, April 14th, 1902. Uh, J.C. Penny opens his first store. See if you can guess what it was called. Um, Spencer Gifts. Uh, good try. It was actually, it wasn't called J.C. Penny just yet. It was called the Golden Rule Store when it was opened in Kemmerer, Wyoming, which, I don't know, has a population of Wyoming. six people and three cows. Yeah, that's where it comes from. From there, it would span out from the wilds of Wyoming to have locations all over the world. Uh, certainly in every one of the 48 contiguous states, I'm sure there's a J.C. Penny in Alaska. There's probably a couple in Hawaii as well. Yeah. As the world has become more virtual shopping oriented, JCPenney went through a whole bunch of uh, growing pains and shudders and flirts with bankruptcy and collapses and sort of picking itself back up and then falling back over again. So you never know if you're going to go to the mall and it'll be there, but it's been there for as long as I've been yeah, alive. The, uh, the North Dynamith so. Mall, uh, my local mall, and where I cut my teeth as a, a budding mall rat. Yeah, they they have a JCPenney over there that's still open. That's been there like I'm not going to say as long as I can remember because I can re remember something else being there first. It was like a, a yep. outlet store, the big O store, because you had the big K store, Kmart yeah, yeah. across the street. Right. But they had the, the outlet store. But yeah, J.C. Benny's been there basically almost as long as I can remember. And even though the yep. in this area anyway, and most of America too, I guess, that the uh, the shopping mall is kind of in its death throes. Mm -hmm. Nope, the North Dartmouth Mall is still there. That's been there for a little over 50 years now. Well, they've always been a little bit behind the time, yeah. so I'm sure I'm, I'm sure history will catch up with the North Dartmouth Mall. It's like up here; the malls are up here are are sort of surviving too. There's a the, the weird part is like the anchor stores have kind of changed. Yeah. So Sears is long dead now. Macy's is flirting with disaster. J.C. Penney's kind of flirting with disaster. But to replace them, there's like Dick's Sporting Goods is a gigantic store and a chain of sporting goods yep. stuff. Dave and Buster's has taken over spots up in the malls up here. And that's a huge, like, two-story restaurant slash video arcade. So there's all these different places that are filling those weird spaces. Kind of like, you know, remember Kmart went, and then Zares took over, and then Zares went, and then Ames took over for Zares. And, like, things just keep filling those spots right. until 
until finally they become like the Halloween store that's only open for five months of the five weeks of the year or the Christmas store or At whatever. The Dartmouth Mall, um, whenever Sears moved out, Burlington Coat Factory moved in, and I'm like. Yep. I don't know, man. It's I mean, it's New England. There's a big market for coats a couple of months out of the year, but I don't know to fill up that size of a of a space. I don't know. I don't. I haven't been in there. Well, it's. It, I mean, they're like the they're like TJ Maxx, but with lots more okay. coats. So they have a bunch of other kind of stuff in there oh. too. It's not. It's not. It's not just coats. It's. It's a little it's bit. A lot, more there's a lot of coats more. in here. A lot. Of, my gosh, we got. If I put two of these on, I'd never be cold. <laughs> it's like the spatula city from the Weird Al movie. We yeah. sell spatulas. Yes, exactly. That's all. Yes, yes. Spatula city. All right, moving along. Yes. We have on uh, April the fifteenth, tax day, and what a tax day it was. Yay. Uh, April fifteenth, nineteen fifty-five. Ray Kroc opens the very first McDonald's. Now nice. that's a Ray Kroc wow. McDonald's. Now McDonald's was founded by two brothers. Uh, who I'm going to assume yep. were named McDonald. <laughs> and, um, they were indeed. Yeah, but he bought them out, and the, his first McDonald's opened up in 1955. Yep. What happened was he bought them out, but allowed them to keep their own restaurant. They right. owned and still ran the McDonald's, the original McDonald's restaurant. And then Ray Kroc right. built one of his McDonald's directly across the street and put them out of business. Yeah. Yeah, he was a yeah. tough guy, that, that guy. Ray, Ray Kroc. Kroc is what we would call, or what my mother would have called, a son of a bitch. <laughs> he, was, he was a son of a bitch who pretty much invented the idea of franchised fast food, yes. though. We've, we've talked before about McDonald's food here on Twibley and, and my weird love of the filet fish <laughs> sandwich. McDonald's food and your bizarre love for air quotes. <laughs> for folks in our sort of generation, McDonald's was always like the cool place to go. You were super lucky if you got to go there for lunch. I was like, oh, McDonald's. Oh, away. yeah, McDonald's so. was a Sunday treat for, for my brother and I, and you know, growing up. Sundays we had to, my mom took us to go hang out with our grandmother. Uh, my father wanted no part of this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we would always go to McDonald's, and my grandmother used to get the yep. filet of fish. Yep. Let's see. For, for, for me, they, there was a McDonald's right up the street from my house, and when we would walk with my grandmother to visit my great-grandmother, she would let us. She would sometimes take us to McDonald's, and we could get a cheeseburger or a French fries or a shake or something. And then, as I grew up and had money from paper routes and stuff, back in those days, the shakes machine, the shake machine worked every once in a while. It, it did indeed. Uh, you inevitably get a book of gift certificates oh, for Christmas yeah. or a book of ten for five dollars. Right, book of ten for five dollars. It's like that's like two Big Macs and a, and three cokes and four French fries. So it was a, it was a big deal. And and what was what was interesting was like their whole philosophy was like. It doesn't matter which McDonald's you eat and the food's going to be the same every right. place. There's like, you can't, there's no customization of anything. And that's how they're able to do it. For such yeah, low they, prices. Yeah, they wanted to have the same flavor no matter where you went in the country or where you went in the world. They wanted all their food to, to have the same flavor. So, which like on surface doesn't sound like a big deal. But when you start thinking about it, that is a big deal. Cows are going to be raised differently and fed different things. And of course, their meat's going to taste different from, from area to area. But not, right. not McDonald's. Right. My funny story for McDonald's has nothing to do with McDonald's. has everything to do with my grandmother. But trust me, trust me on this story. My grandmother, there was two standards that came with going to McDonald's with my grandmother. One or both, more often both, of these incidents would happen. My grandmother was incapable of opening up a coffee creamer without wearing 90% of it. Gelection <laughs> creamer, I'm going to need yeah. three of those. Wait, like a lot of creamy you coffee, huh? No, I don't. I actually don't get much of it in the coffee. 
Yeah, I don't know what she would do. I think she would just like like when she held it, she pinched it so that whenever she like broke the seal, it would just squirt everywhere. It was hilarious. And the nice. other thing, my grand my grandmother was incapable of closing a car door properly. So the second my mother took a right hand turn, there goes Meme almost flying out the damn door. Jeez, I mean, it sounds like she was dangerous to travel yeah. with Andy. With how she lived um, to be eighty is beyond me. I really don't know. Right, right. Um, she must have had a deal deal with the devil. McDonald's has always been associated with like the United States and plenty so much so that when the first one opened in Moscow and I want to say it was like 1989 or 1988, it made international news, oh, right. <laughs> you know, that McDonald's was finally in like the Soviet union. And when the first one opened in China, that made international news too. These are all these weird inroads culturally into otherwise closed economies. And, and it became this real symbol of uh, sort of American corporate reach and, and the idea that that the, the the sort of system that made this restaurant possible could be a system that could make people successful in your country too, you know, this weird weird aspirational place to get like low cost hamburgers. I always thought it would like the first day it opened up in Moscow, they all must have been just scratching their heads because because like, because of the problem. What is Big Mac? Yeah. I don't understand. Why do you need two, two hamburgers? What is hamburger? No, I, I want... Do you know Vladimir? What is this? Uh, uh, me and Nikolai, we're going to take a turnip and <laughs> dip it in mayonnaise. That is good. <laughs> it, it... Yesterday I ate plov. It was just rice and piece of pork. I don't understand what French fries is. It... Is this some sort of pie? I, I, I just wanted some nice bosk. I didn't need, I didn't need the salt, the salt thing that you call a French fry or whatever. What is Coke? <laughs> I will have one of those. It's very bubbly, this Coke. <laughs> What do you have for the 16th, young Jeff? <laughs> 1943. April 16th, 1943 even. Uh, Swiss chemist and co-discoverer of lysergic acid dithalabide, or LSD, Albert Hoffman accidentally rubs some... <laughs> accidentally rubs himself... Accidentally, if, if you've ever accidentally rubbed yourself with certain substances, you'll understand. He accidentally rubs against some LSD, has a few hours of really strange visions and colors, and I can see the music man, and... Um, and, and has like that first, he sort of documents all the hallucinations that he has. He has his first weird ass LSD trip. The first time that that phenomenon of hallucinations from this drug were recognized. And then later, because he's a scientist, he's like, I wonder if I could do this on purpose and did. And then had like a, like the first dedicated, like our first documented, like really bad trip. Like, Oh, you know, they're coming to take my pants away. And, uh, and, uh, from, from there. And the writings that he did after that, sort of in the 1950s and 60s, Leary and the others would start to take LSD and use it for, for research into things like uh, psychosomatic illnesses and therapy and other stuff. And, you know, Ken Kesey with the electric Kool-Aid bus and all this other sort of stuff. And it would become a cultural thing outside of this, not first discovery, but first sort of weird accidental exposure to in the lab. Now, um, drugs... Uh, as as we call them in in America, uh, drugs kind of coming. There's like a fad. They, they're almost like fads. They come and go. Like in the '80s, cocaine was like a big thing, but you really really don't hear too much about it these days. Usually, the drug of choices these days are, are pill forms. Right. And you know, and pot has never gone out of style. Uh, in the '60s, LSD was very popular, and there was. I just remember there was this punk band in, in my area in the late '80s. And they were called Dan Rather Remember the 60s because Dan Rather did like an expose on LSD and actually like took LSD like for the news. 
It was like describing nice. it. Yeah. So yeah, Dan Rather remembered the '60s. I was like, that is a brilliant band name. Yeah, and you'd have to have a gimmick though. Like the lead singer oh, sure would they have did. to be at a news table, <laughs> high on LSD, and all the songs had to be about topical things from that week. So you could you could fit any songs in there, but you just have to make them topical. That was just a, um, it was an eighty minute jam session of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. <laughs> What's the weather like, man? 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 <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. That's Dan Rather and the songs. We were in high school. They called it mescaline or skleens. What was going around was what they called green stars and purple double barrels. Now, they weren't mescaline at all. They were, there was LSD. The chem students over at what's now UMass Dartmouth used to make it. That's where the, the drug dealers used to get it from, from UMass. It was just, it was little pieces of pasta like chicken and stars dried out and yeah. soaked in this uh, in LSD. And it was green stars and, was a, and the double barrels was just like spaghetti, you know. My one and only experience with LSD or acid, acid's the same thing, people. Uh, yeah, it's a colloquial Yeah, it's a colloquial name for it. So, yeah. so uh, you know, we split a green star, which was microscopic, but it still did the trick, you know. What was weird about it is it, it, it doesn't hit you right away. It's not like any other any other drug that you might do. It literally takes an hour or two hours before it hits you. Mm-hmm. So we had, you know, we had taken the, we had t- dropped the acid, so to speak. And then we came back to my house. And then all of a sudden, like two hours later, we just like looked at each other. And we're like, we got to go. And, uh, <laughs> and we hopped off and we just like spent like the afternoon, uh, you know, the afternoon hanging out in the woods. I remember like just being very focused. I was able to count the branches on the tree. I was just sitting there just counting them. I got up as far as 87. And then Craig tackled me because I was freaking him out because I was staring out into space. <laughs> well, I've I've never had that experience or any experience with that. I guess I guess there's a culture that with stuff like like ayahuasca and as things like psilocybin mushrooms are becoming, they're not becoming more legal but decriminalized in other parts of the country. It'll probably in the course of our lifetime, yeah. Bill, make it so that folks will be able to go and find and recreationally use stuff like this without having to go to UMass and say like. Can I have some green stars? <laughs> You'd be able to go to like the pharmacy and say like, can I have some green stars? And they'll say, do you have insurance? And you say, no. Well, you're going to have to go out in the cow fields and pick out the, pick out the right. mushrooms from the patties there. And right. Go look, go look underneath the counters. Oh, by the way, they've been cleaning the cow's feet. feet. Steps over there watching. <laughs> There's lovely. Yeah, I've never seen anything Dainty. like it. All right. So moving along to April the 17th, this man very well could have, or at least should have uh, been on acid. <laughs> He definitely had a bad trip. Oh, yeah. This guy. <laughs> this this guy, his name is Richard Johnson. Uh, but before there was Richard Johnson, there was a stuntman known as Kite Man. Now, this is in the ni- yeah, this right. is in the 1970s, right? Now, in the 1970s, baseball, you, you almost had to pay people to watch it. You know, it, it, it wasn't very exciting. It wasn't very popular. Certainly not like it is now. I think they gave it the the nickname America's Pastime just to get people to go. Because I mean, let's. I mean, I have many friends that are big baseball fans. But let's call a spade a spade. It's slow. It's a slow moving game. In seventy two too. I mean, that's like the golden age of like the real golden age of like primetime television. Yeah. So putting a baseball game and again these are local. These are local stations that right. show them. So. Showing a localized baseball game from Philadelphia or Boston or whatever, that's not going to go cross-country. It's not on a sports right. network. It's going to be competing with whatever's on ABC, CBS, um, and NBC if you're not showing that baseball game. 
And people have things that they watch every week, so they don't watch it. It's right. not – it doesn't draw in the audience the same way. And because TV is so popular, it doesn't draw in the audience to the stadiums. Oh, right, for sure. There's a huge, like, economic pressure on baseball in the late 60s and early 70s to get people to go to stadiums. So what they used to do – What they used to do is they would have all these, like, crazy gimmicks – you know, the, you know, having uh, some airplanes fly overhead or, you know, a, a stuntman doing crazy stuff. And there was this guy, yep. Kite Man, and basically he was going to fly into the baseball stadium on like a hang glider, basically. You know, it's a, a kite strapped to his back, but basically a hang glider. And he was going to hang glide into the stadium, land on the field, go over to the pitching mound and throw the first pitch. Throw now, that pitch. was the plan. That is not what happened, though, because uh, the, uh, the Kite Man, um, his uh, his skills were actually needed uh, south of the border because he was uh, he was he was busy teaching the president of Mexico how to water ski. Right at the time, he was known as Kite yeah. Senor. Senor Kato. Yeah, what a resume this guy must have, huh? Kite Man, water ski, ski instruction to the stars, etc. <laughs> And, and also makes a lovely three-bean salad. So our friend Richard Johnson, on uh, April 17th of 1972, he owned a hardware store. They basically convinced him to take over for Kite Man. He's like, yeah, I'll do it. And they're like, well, you know, do you want to do a, you want to do a test run for us? And he's like, nah, if I die, I don't want you to be the only one who sees it, right? So here comes a good old Richard Johnson, uh, jumps off from whatever he jumps off of, Goes hang gliding into the stadium and just totally eats shit and <laughs> <laughs> smashes into the center field. Yeah, he just crashes into the stands in center field and just like lobs the ball <laughs> and it like lands in the bullpen. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Like he crashes so hard he gets up and he still tries to make yeah. the throw. <laughs> He's like all dippy, like you know, like he must like hit his head. He's like C three PO when they first put him back together. Oh, I've been shot! It's like oh, I gotta throw the ball. Oh man, so funny. Unfortunately, uh, I could not find any video evidence of this. This must have been freaking hilarious, though. Well, not hilarious. I mean, imagine that you're, the, you're somebody that saw the Lee Harvey Oswald get assassinated on TV, and now you're watching this like right. snuff film of uh, Richard Johnson eating <laughs> into the center field of the Phillies game. <laughs> and the, the funny thing is, like, that didn't even slow down the weird ass promos that baseball st- steam owners used to try and oh, do. Yeah. So they'd have like. Uh, I forget the name of the the owner, but he had he had a pitcher who was a dwarf, and he would come out with like one half was his number, and they'd put him on the mound in like the seventh inning to pitch two innings, and everybody would think it was really funny. But he was on the yeah. team. Yeah, that, that's the stuff that led to like the ten cent beer night riots. And <laughs> I love that story. The, death, the, the death, the disco riots, and other stuff is just trying to get people in seats for baseball. It's funny, funny. It has a really funny history of uh, of promo. See if you can guess what other industry a lot of those promo people cross over with. Arena football. As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly, but with radio stations. <laughs> oh, radio stations, okay. Yeah. I, you know, we were talking on the when we were like dissecting the show on what we were going to do, and we brought up something that ended up in the dustbin, uh, the San Diego chicken. But think about how many lives the San Diego chicken must have saved because he, he was the team mascot. Richard Johnson must have been, oh, thank God that I don't have to go like high diving into a glass of water like Bugs Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can you imagine, like, at the beginning of the season, there's all these people lined up, like, all right, what do you do? All right, I jump out of a plane, uh, and I hold two balloons from the local Walmart, and I try and land on a target. All right, well, that's a possibility. All right, you wait over there. How about you? What's your job? I marinated myself in lamp oil and set myself on fire. Well, that's a good one. 
you go over to the left and you talk with that guy. Okay, uh, we're going to need you for, like, the postseason. Uh, who's next? What do you do? Well, I beat myself over the head with ukulele and wear a diaper. That's our man. <laughs> He's the guy that's going to open the stadium, you know? But, so, but they couldn't get him because he had to, he had to show El Chapo how to ride an ATV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was taken off to show the to show the uh, the Emperor of Turkey how to unicycle. No, the Emperor Emperor Norton how to <laughs> Emperor Norton. Yes, America's uh, first Emperor of America and, and, and Guardian of Mexico and Canada. Yes. All right, and let's wrap up the week with April eighteenth. April eighteenth, nineteen eighty seven. I know uh, Bill and I spent many many hours watching the Headbangers Ball. Yes which premiered on April 18th of 1987. The first, like, full-on, I think that show was, what, two hours long? First full-on metal show on MTV. Yep. And it was on late at night, so it made it hard for your parents to let you watch it, if you were like me. <laughs> it, it didn't just feature, like, whatever sort of metal, I'm saying metal with air quotes like you can see me, but metal-ish videos that were on in regular rotation on MTV. That's where you saw stuff like Creator. You might see a concert. Um, you'd get interviews with Queensryche or... They'd show concert footage of other bands. There'd be a lot of videos, too, and they'd have different artists sometimes pick the songs that were going to be shown. No, it started out being hosted by Adam Curry, who was one of the, right. one, he was the second generation of VJs over there. He had enormous hair. The podfather, yeah. Yep. And then um, it got, the, the show got taken over by Ricky Rackman, who was yes. the owner of, I think, the Whiskey A Go-Go. I, could, I yep. could be wrong. But uh, he was the owner of the Whiskey Go Go famous nightclub in uh, for heavy metal uh, on the LA Strip. Yeah, they would have guest hosts every once in a while. I remember just to, just to give you a, 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 an idea of how not metal the Headbangers Ball could be. Uh, I remember it was being hosted by Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden one one particular yeah. episode, and he introduced the video by uh, a band who he happened to be very good friends with their lead singer, Fish, and they showed Kaylee by Marillion on the Headbangers <laughs> Ball. Now, for, for those who don't know, Marillion is not a heavy metal band. Far from. Matter of fact, they were like an anti-metal band. They were they were yeah, very proggy. Yeah, they didn't belong on that. And, and, Kaylee, and Kaylee is the, like, in that particular period of their career is the softest of like their yeah that was that was the hit single off the album i don't hear a single well did you hear kaylee and i remember one time they were showing uh the they were going to do a premiere for quiet riot and kevin dubro said people say our band plays heavy metal we don't play heavy metal we play the heaviest metal and my friend craig and i just looked at each other and were like the heaviest metal i mean because slayer was a thing at that point it was always that was one of those shows that was always on in the background when i was a kid because i used to get out of work late late i worked for my parents in a restaurant right. so getting home at like 11 30 at night or midnight and it was on you just have it on in the background while you're doing other stuff right. and it was one of those weird things where it's like oh it's like oh my god i haven't seen this video from I don't know, friggin' Def Leppard. Leather Wolf. Yeah. 70 Hours or whatever. Yeah. It, it was definitely less good when Ricky Rackman was hosting it because he was the sort of the impetus behind how hair metal got to grow on MTV, right. I think. You know, again, it was still it was still a it was still a cool show. It was like the way, you know, similar they had similar programming on at different parts of the day. So there's like Yo MTV Raps, which was on from four to six every day, and they had um, the basement tapes and they had other stuff, so 120 minutes on Sunday nights, yeah. Yeah, that was actually the longest running show that they ever had on MTV. Yeah. It was 120 minutes. That was like uh, alternative before alternative even had a name. Right. Yeah. That was still college rock. Yeah. And then later, long, long after that, in the in the middle, 
I want to say the late 90s, I guess, they had Amp, they had Amp, which was like a dance music show, which was really good with like sort of rave artists and techno artists and stuff. That was really fun. I have a couple of the soundtracks of that show. Oh, wow. Singles. I have two CDs full of singles from that show. It was great. And then they and then they stopped playing music altogether. So. Yeah, that is that is the common like gripe from Generation X. They're like, "Oh, MTV stop playing music videos." It's like, "Get over it." You know? <laughs> it's like you have YouTube. You can look up anything you want at any time you want. And uh actually I found on my Roku there is a channel that you can or an app or whatever called Flashback 80s yep. and it is just constantly playing 80s videos and, it, and it, like and a variety of different genres too. You and I both know, though, that, like, again, MTV became, like, the radio station that was on, and you knew the VJs, and you listened, and you heard their voices, and you heard their whatever, and you heard Kurt Loder say, like, oh, you know, that guy from that band, he was found in a car with a thing, and, and it became, like, this, just the constant background noise to that, to that time when we were kids, right? you know, so, for, so, for when that stopped, and it's one of those, like, get over, it. yeah, but that was a big seismic change in, in, in sort of my entertainment development as a human was when that was when that happened. Right. And and they say your musical tastes are pretty much set in stone by the time you're fifteen. And that was you know, when we were fifteen, that was basically MTV's heyday. That was, definitely. Yep. yep. All right. But moving on to the celebrity birthdays. Uh, speaking of somebody who had their heyday in 1985 to 87 or whatever. April the twelfth, nineteen forty seven, your friend and mine, David Letterman. Huh. Look at that. The man who made late night accessible to people who weren't 150 years old. <laughs> right. Like, growing up, we always... I think we've discussed Johnny Carson on this show bef- uh, on this show before, where Johnny Carson was something, like, your parents liked and stuff like that. Yeah. And, like, a late night talk show, it just seemed like something, like, your parents did. A lot of the humor kind of, like, went over your head and stuff like that. But David Letterman played to a much younger audience. Right. He always had, a, a re- like, a relationship with the audience, too. Like, he already do you. Like yes. I, I've gone back and watched clips of his of his show when he was in different facets of his career, and it always felt like when you were watching him, he was interacting with you like this in a weird sort of fourth wall breaking kind of way. Yes, you know that was really really interesting and accessible. Like as an example, uh, every now and then he would have a different guest show up and and play in Paul Schaefer's band. So like Eddie Van Halen was there for for a while and played yep. a bunch of songs, and there was one when. Todd Rundgren was was sitting in with the band. And he's just there, and he looks over. And he's like to Paul. He's like, "Hey, is that Todd Rundgren's in the band?" And he says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He says, "What? You're gonna do a bunch of songs tonight?" He goes, "Well, we're gonna do one." And he just looks at the camera. and Goes, "You know, when I get my own show, we're gonna do things the way I want." <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious because, like, that's his own show. You know? Yeah. And he, and he was like really pleading with Paul, like, "Hey, you do more than just one." You know? <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back to my studio at like my office and listen to his records because you're not gonna play enough of his music. It was wicked funny. <laughs> when I get my own show, and he, my he's own on his own show. Uh, uh, David Letterman, it was only on four nights a week, if you remember correctly. It was only on Monday Monday through Thursday. It wasn't on yeah, Fridays. That's right. yep. You know, I was a teenager, and in, in school, and it came on at 12.30 at night. I would always set the VCR to tape it, because it, it was that, you know, I used to like watching it a lot. Yep. He used yep. to do the stupid pet tricks, and then the yeah. stupid, then ultimately the stupid human the tricks. Human tricks. Yeah. All right, moving on. Next up. April 13th, 1891, a woman named Vesta Stout. She worked in an armaments factory and came to the realization that as she was closing up these packages to be shipped out to soldiers fighting in World War II, of which two of her sons were there, that the time it takes to get these packages open could mean the difference between life and death for soldiers on the battlefield. And she created and proposed um, a kind of cloth tape 
that was much easier to open, but was also waterproof and held boxes closed. That is the origin story of duct tape. We mispronounce it. Like people think it's called duct tape, like quack, quack, but it's spelled duct, D-U-C-T. But it was actually originally called duct tape and they didn't use it for duct work until much later. And uh, I always found it interesting that duct tape works on everything excellent, except for ducks. Duck work, it sucks on duck work. Yeah. Because of the humidity, it kind of falls it apart. And if you were around in the 1990s, it became the ultimate fashion accessory. We used to make pants and wallets and all sorts of other things out of duct tape. All right. Uh, next up, April the 14th, 1945. One of my favorite guitar players, Richie Blackmore from from Deep Purple and from, yeah. Rain, from Rainbow. Yep. yep. Yeah, awesome guitar player. On the very first day of MTV that we brought up earlier and a couple times during the episode, they had two videos from Rainbow uh, on, that aired that day. Can't Happen Here with Joe Lynn Turner on vocals and All Night Long with my favorite uh, Rainbow vocalist, Graham Bonnet. Mm-hmm. Richie Blackmore always stuck out in my mind because so many guitar players were all like, you know, and like Eddie Van Halen with the fretwork and the very flashy and stuff like that where Richie Blackmore just stood there, very calm, very stoic, and watched what he was doing. He always looked at himself playing. You know, he always always washed his hand on the fretboard. He's awesome. I, I still I still go back to even today and listen to uh, Deep Purple Records and Rainbow Records. Yeah. Because his 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 lead lines are so good in those in those albums. Some of the best guitar solos are the ones that you can sing along with. Yep. His solos are definitely like that. Like the the one in Highway Star. Richie yep, Blackmore, yep. guitar player extraordinaire. He does the Renaissance Fair circuit now. Does he? Does he? Does he play? Uh, does he play the old man's guitars made out of wood? <laughs> he does an amazing version of "Since You've Been Gone" on a uh, <laughs> on a lute. No, um, <laughs> no, he plays. Yeah, he, he plays Renaissance era style music now. Yeah, he, he plays Renaissance Fairs. It's it's. Oh wow. Yeah, interesting career path. Yeah, he has the right name for it. Yeah, he sure it's, does. It's, yeah. it's Earl Richie Blackmore. Thank you very much. Today I'll be playing. Um, Oxcott star. Uh, speaking of Renaissance era. Hey, that's right. Who's, April who's 15th, that? April 15th, 1452. Renaissance icon Leonardo da Vinci. Painter, sculptor, uh, the man who invented technical drawing. And the man that gave Dan Brown something to freaking write about. <laughs> yes, a code, as it were. A yeah. code to unlocking the secrets of the Freemasons. You know what's interesting about uh, Leonardo da Vinci... And his uh, and his contemporary there, Michelangelo. Not only were they painters, but they were also inventors. Yes. Uh, Leonardo yeah, yeah. da Vinci invented ball bearings. He did. Yep. You know, he also designed and technically invented a parachute, powered airplane, tank, machine gun, a bunch of other stuff too. His no, but yeah, da Vinci was like again, he's the father of of technical drawing. He would he would draw out these complicated these complicated gear and mechanics to make things work, like a tank or. Uh, uh, a helicopter. He invented and designed the parachute before there was a, like a hundreds of years before an airplane. I'm sure that the question he showed it to the, you know like Cosmo de Medici and he's like, "Into the parachute." And Cosmo goes, "Hey, Leonardo, how do you get a guy up in the sky?" And he says, "I don't know yet. I haven't done. I haven't thought that far ahead." Yeah, the devil's in the details. <laughs> right? Look, I worry about getting the guy down. Okay. Uh, speaking of airplanes. Uh, a little while later, April the 16th, 1867, Wilbur, brother to Orville Wright, the one of the Wright brothers uh, who had the first successful flight 
or so we've been told. As research has shown me, about two years before the Wright brothers took their flight over at Kitty Hawk, there was another f- man that flew, but it wasn't so much an airplane. It was more, I think it was more like a hang glider, like our, uh, our friend Richard Johnson. Um, uh, he, there was a guy, his name was like Gustav or something like that. He had another flight. But anyway, the Wright brothers, they, they are going to be my first flight people. I don't care what history shows. Uh, prior to being people that made airplanes, uh, they were bicycle mechanics. All right. All right. All right. But moving on to the 17th, what do we got? Uh, April 17th, 1820, Alexander Cartwright, one of the very early American sportsmen and president of the Knickerbocker Baseball Club, effectively invents the rules that would become the modern rules of baseball. And then it was, it's often been assumed that the baseball rules were invented by Abner Doubleday, but I, that was sort of not disproven, but withdrawn sometime in the 1950s. And Knickerbocker was put into the Baseball Hall of Fame. It was his first, his first set of rules that were used in the first real baseball club in the United States in New York. The Gotham League, I guess, is where he sort of put them together. And those are the ones that influenced how all the other baseball rules, even up to 1972 with Kite Man, uh, would be played. So if you like baseball, you got to go all the way back to 1820. Uh, Knickerbocker and Doubleday are some of the most hilarious names I've ever heard in my life. I seem to remember George Carlin adding a couple of new rules <laughs> to baseball that I thought were really cool. Yes. Do you remember what they are? I remember one was, everybody gets one straight. That's it. You miss? you. Sit down. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. Any pitcher who hits the batter with the ball, batter's out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that one, too. Yep. <laughs> no, move, move, those, move that game right along. Speed things up. <laughs> Speed things up. And speaking of baseball, a staple in baseball snackage, uh, on April the 18th of 1846, a man by the name of Frederick William Ruckheim, uh, a German-born American candy maker, very famous for inventing Cracker Jacks. Now, he didn't do it alone. He had help from his brother, Lewis. Now, Cracker Jacks isn't exactly... There's not a lot going on there. It was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure like FW over here was going to be like, we're going to uh, coat these uh, popcorn with caramel and toffee. And then his brother yelled out for the next room, and peanuts! And then, <laughs> don't forget the peanuts! And then uh, that was it. But Cracker Jacks, yep, uh, part of the baseball song. That, that song there, Tick Me Out to the Ball Game, has always been problematic for me. I don't know. The person, the narrator of that song just sounds too boss me. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. Hey, how about you get a freaking job and buy your own damn snacks, you little shit. <laughs> and our, our friend FW had a late start in his career, too. He uh, and his brother invented Cracker Jacks in 1893, making FW over here 47 years old. And it was also right. FW that started including the little prizes in Cracker Jacks. Yep. Now, that wasn't until 1921. And he was like 75 years old. He must have had like dementia or something like, put a prize in the box! <laughs> I make people want them because you can only eat so much caramel and popcorn for you. Like, I think, were these invented by dentists? Yeah. What am I chewing? What am I chewing on? This isn't a peanut. This is like a little little booklet of tattoos. Oh, it's a crown. Ow. Oh, <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, that take take me out to the ball game song, like I said before. I mean, it's it's problematic for me, but it definitely isn't. The worst song ever. 
I'm gonna take the reins on this one because uh, I when we sta- uh, when we established the worst song ever segment over the last summer. There was like certain songs I like I kept my eyes out for because I knew they had to be in there because this song I hate this song so much and like it's some songs that we bring up it's like we just bring them up because they they were popular they had no right to be or like with dd king that they're so bad that they're actually kind of enjoyable no this song just sucks on ice this song sucks canal water i have no idea why this even happened well i kind of have an idea why it happened usa for africa presents we are the world this freaking song uh it was the number one song this week in 1985 i remember this song being played i'm just gonna go out on a limb here and 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 give a round number 500 trillion times on mtv in 1985 this was the first song to be played twice on mtv in 1981 and it would be four years before the song would even be written (laughs) that's how often they played it they had to go back in time to fill up the time. Yeah. Now, yep. now this song came about because there was a, a huge, you know, famine in uh, in Ethiopia and in Africa and stuff. And our good friend Bob Geldof from the Boomtown Rats got together with a bunch of his friends over in England, probably about six months earlier, and recorded Christmas classic "Do They Know It's Christmas," which raised a lot of money. And America, being America like we are, when we see a good idea, we have to do it, you know? And, uh, and this was one of those cases. Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, there's a combo, uh, got together and penned this little ditty. Let's run the clip. You know, it's it's hard to like separate the song from the reason the song exists. You know, so I like I have a much greater tolerance for this sort of thing, I guess, than you do. Like this song was released specifically to like raise proceeds so that it could buy. I don't even know it didn't buy hamburgers, but it it, it raised money to help offset the famine in Ethiopia at the time. Right now, that, the Ethiopian Civil War. Now that's a double sided coin because I remember at the pre show we were talking about this and we brought up, do they know it's Christmas? And you, yes. yeah, you said that was like one of your least favorite Christmas songs, and <laughs> yes. and I love that song. I actually watched the documentary of the making of the of the song and recording of it. I watch it every year. It's one of my traditions and all that. But yep. we are that to me, that's a good and catchy song. We are the world is not a good and catchy song. We are the world is trash. You can make an argument that do they know it's Christmas time is culturally idiotic, though, because the idea being that you're taking Western, modern, commercialized Christmas mythology is and wondering if people who are scrabbling to literally, you know, collect enough calories in a day not to die of starvation. Oh, I understand that. Yeah, I understand that. Like, that's that's the reason that I hate that song with such a vigorous passion. A better title for it would have been, like, do they give a shit that it's Christmas time at all? Right, Right, I get that. Just give me some rice. Ho, ho, ho. And the lyric, and there won't be snow in Africa. Yeah, I know. It's bad. I, I get that. But We Are the World, everything about it. 
top to bottom, the over singing of everybody, like uh, Bruce Springsteen with his, we are the one. Calm the hell down, Bruce. Yeah, it's again, it's not a, it's not a great song. No, uh, I mean the stars of the day. I mean, you name them, you name the American people, they're in there. Steve Perry's in there. What the Kim Carnes is in there somewhere yeah. from uh, yeah. Betty Davis Eyes, Huey Lewis. Uh, yeah, it was all the people who were like MTV popular in that that year in eighty four, eighty five. Um, doesn't surprise me. And and why why wouldn't they be in this song? So uh, most hilariously about this video, if you watch, if you get on to like towards the end and uh, like when they have the big group when everybody's doing the we are yeah. the world, we are pot with you know the big chorus and everybody singing at the same time, you will see Dan Aykroyd. What the yeah, hell is right. Dan Aykroyd doing in there? For starters, just to throw this out there, Dan Aykroyd is not an American. He's from Canada. He was born in Ottawa, Canada. But what happened was, he had, I, I think the story is he had the same manager as this person that was handling this account, and he had gone in to see them or publicist or whatever it was, and they happened to be recording like in the next room from where he was, and they were like, "Hey, you want to be in a music video?" He's like, "Yeah, okay." It was just like really happenstance. He didn't. He wasn't wow. planning on being there. He wasn't supposed to be there. It was just complete happenstance. All right, so uh, let's get on to the answer to today's trivia question. Oh, boy. All right. The trivia question was, which music video was the first song to be played twice on MTV? Knowing the history of MTV, the first song that was played, I'm going to just go out on a limb and guess and say it was probably uh, Aldo Nova's Fantasy. No. That's a good guess, though. The first song to be played twice on MTV was The Who's You Better You Bet. Wow. And if my minimalist research is correct... The Who was actually the band with the most music videos on MTV on their first day. They had three videos from the Face Dances album, which all looked identical. Don't Let Go of the Coat, You Better You Bet, and Another Tricky Day. And they also had a video for Sister Disco from the Rock for the People for Campuchia videos. Yep. So yeah, the first video to be shown twice on MTV was You Better You Bet by The Who. They played it five times within the first 24 hours. Wow. Yep. And 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 to think, at the time I was like, these guys are old. Oh, right, yeah. And now I look back and I'm like, these guys are barely 30. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, they were in their early 30s at that point, yep. But they had, yeah. been, they had been around for a long time. And you got to remember, The Who started as babies. Yeah, I know. That is going to wrap up this week's show. Uh, have a great week, everyone. We will see you right back here, right around the same time next week. Say good night, Jeff. Hey, good night, Jeff. Good night, everybody. Bye, guys. See you later, yep. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibly or T W W W B L Y. Subscribe if you haven't already, and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode. There'll be one next week, and it'll probably be better. Yep, yep. My mom used to bring me a hamburger, a cheeseburger, and a root beer from there when I was a, when I was under three, uh, and spent Tuesday nights at my grandmother's house because she worked at the bank downtown and had to stay late. But she just sat home on Friday nights covering herself with coffee creamers like my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Memes lost her goddamn mind again. <laughs>